you know, we live in a culture, we live in a world today that is um, all about the quick fix, all right? You know what I mean? You know, here's how it goes. I mean, how can I achieve, how can we achieve a, a desired result with as little of work or effort as possible? It's all about the quick fix. Let me, give, let me give you a couple of examples. Something breaks, all right? Duct tape, all right? Duct tape is a classic example of our fixation with quick fixes. For how many of you is duct tape like the greatest invention of all time? Aaron Olvey's hand went up very fast. How many of you, for you, is duct tape like the greatest invention of all time? For those of you that aren't ashamed to raise your hands, and I know there's, there, there has to be even more of you, but uh, duct tape, it is. It's like the greatest dimension. I mean, your roof, gets a re- or your roof gets a leak. You know, what do you do? Well, a couple layers of duct tape, you know, over the spot. It's sure to do the trick. Uh, I-, I was driving down the road one day, and I was following a car whose bumper otherwise would have been ready to fall off, but not if it weren't for duct tape. And there was duct tape, I mean, wrapped all the way. It was probably in Kentucky where I saw this. But, uh, you know, duct tape wrapped all the way around that car. I used to live in Kentucky, so don't be offended if you're from there. Uh, you cut off your finger with a power tool, you know, just reach for the duct tape, you know, it'll help you out until you're able to get back uh, to, to, to get to the hospital. I mean, it's, it's a, it, it's a must-need tool in every household. I mean, it sits in that, that kitchen drawer, you know, right next to that old butter knife. I mean, you've got an old butter knife and a roll of duct tape and you can do just about anything. Uh, again, you know, we're, we're fascinated with quick fixes, especially when it comes to our, our financial goals. All right, how many of you remember Matthew Lesko? From TV. I haven't seen him on TV in quite a while. He's that, that famous infomercial guy. He wore the purple coat with the question marks all of it, all over it. He'd say something like, you know, I can show you how to get $50,000 to go to college or open a coffee shop. You know what I'm talking about? You know, ask, let's go. That, that's what he'd say. Or, or you know, the, this fascination, if I just buy this book and just read what it has to say, I can get a quick fix on, on a little extra money. Or, or maybe you've gotten the email that's gone around, you know, it's the one from like Prince Hananui or something from, from, from uh, Africa that you are just the fortunate recipient of 50 gajillion dollars, you know, from the family estate that he wants to send your way. How many of you have gotten that email before? All right, plenty of you. Others of you are a little disappointed because you, wow, I thought I was the only one. I mean, you've been, you've been checking your online account waiting for it to come through. It's not coming. It's, it's, it's just a scam. Or, or, or we, we get, we get uh, fixated with, with the quick fix when it comes to weight loss. You know, I mean, it's all about just this one miraculous diet pill. You know, sure, it's illegal in 35 states, but not Indiana, you know. And so if I just take this pill, you know, I'm all set to go. Or, or how many of you have a piece of exercise equipment in your house that makes a great storage shelf for Christmas decorations? I mean, the boxes stack right on that treadmill, you know, over in the corner of your basement with, without any problems. Well, I mean, it all, all each of these are indicators of the fact that we've all fallen victim to various, you know, get rich, get thin, quick fix type of schemes, you know, and it's not that we're lazy, well, maybe we are a little bit at times, you know, but we we just don't want to put in all the effort that's necessary to achieve our desired results. You know, this morning we're going to meet a man here in Scripture who was looking for a quick fix in his life, and he wasn't alone, there were others too. But he's out of hope, uh, he, he's at the very end of his rope, and, and, and he desperately needs a miracle. 
And so he went looking to the only place that he knew to look uh, for such a miracle. If you've got your Bibles, turn to John chapter 5. Uh, go to the fourth book in the New Testament. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 5 today. We're, we, we spent a little time in this text a couple of weeks ago, and, and I asked the question, are you becoming more and more like Jesus Christ in the way that you live? And, and I don't know if that question uh, stayed with you at all, and you've had a the opportunity to maybe explore that question for yourself a little bit. I, I know that it's a question that Jenny and I have, have tossed around a little over the last couple of weeks. It's, it's even a question that we're asking as a staff right now as we pray and we think about what kind of church that we want to be. I mean, are we becoming more and more like Jesus in the way that we live and the way that we exist? But there's another question in these verses that I want to look at today, and, and that's why we're going back uh, to John chapter 5. And, and so let's start in verse 1. It says, Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews. Now there is in Jerusalem near the sheep gate a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And so Jesus had been in this area, this region called Galilee, a region around the Sea of Galilee to the north of Jerusalem. And Jesus is coming back to Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts, most likely the Passover. And as he was coming back to Jerusalem, while he could have entered the city from any number of gates, Jesus entered the city through the Sheep Gate. Now, the Sheep Gate was near the temple and near this place, which is called Bethesda. Now, Bethesda had two pools. Uh, we know that there were two pools at Bethesda, and the Scripture tells us that there were these covered colonnades that provided a, a large area of shade around the pool. So you, it was like you could sit on the patio near the pools underneath the shade. And this was a very well-known no, lo, location in the city, uh, not like it was the public pool or anything. But when Jesus entered the city, he went straight to Bethesda. He went straight to this location. He knew what he was doing when he entered Bethesda. He went there on purpose. Jesus was, was very aware of His mission, he, he was led by the Holy Spirit, and He was always seeking to do the will of His Father. And on this day, in this time, in this place, the Holy Spirit was leading Him to this place called Bethesda. Now, the irony of it is that it's a location that most people avoided. I mean, if you were healthy, if you were rich, if you were religious, you avoided Bethesda. Verse 3 tells us a little more why. It says, here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. Now, Bethesda means house of mercy, and Bethesda was this sad place in Jerusalem. Now, who hung out at Bethesda? Well, the Scriptures tell us, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. And again, the healthy and the religious people avoided Bethesda altogether. Some say that Bethesda on a busy day was regularly occupied with hundreds, if not thousands, of sick people at any time. Okay, now just try and imagine the sight if you can. You're, you're standing on the edge of these pools. There are these patio areas, these covered areas all around the pool. Hundreds, if not thousands, of sick people, of lame people, of the paralyzed. And Jesus went to this place. You know, the sick people would come from miles uh, to be at Bethesda. Again, I mean, try and imagine if you can, such a sad place. <clears throat> We've all been to sad places before. <clears throat> I was on a uh, mission team 
that went to Sweden a few years ago, and I was with my former church, and there was a group of us basketball players or wannabes uh, that went on this trip uh, to Sweden to put on a basketball camp for a week and uh, to share the, the good news of Jesus Christ with, with these kids. And on our way home, we spent two days in this city, uh, Copenhagen, Denmark. It was a city that we had flown in and out of. And, and Copenhagen is a sad city. It's, it's a very dark city. And you know, if you were just passing by, you may not realize it. If you live there, you may not quite realize it. But, but it's a dark city in that very few people claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and something like 1% or less ever attend a church, you know, on a regular basis. And so there's this village or this community in Copenhagen called Christiana. And, and Christiana is a commune. It, it's, a, it's a free society. And the people that live there are independent of any government rule or involvement almost whatsoever. Uh, there are not really any laws. All things are shared at Christiana, and for the most part, anything goes at Christiana. I mean, it's a sad place. It's a real place. But it's, it's this popular tourist attraction that if you go to Copenhagen during the day, you take a walk through this village uh, called Christiana. Drug use and alcohol use is extremely high. Uh, crime the same. In fact, until about five years ago, you could walk down the main street of Christiana and walk up to a booth, much like you walk up to the funnel cake booth at the state fair, and buy illegal drugs directly uh, from this booth. Uh, that, that's Christiana. Well, the Danish government has since kind of cracked down on the obvious drug use, but you know, even as you walk through, you know it's still there, and, and graffiti is sprayed everywhere, and anti-government and anti-religion words, you know, painted on roads and on buildings. But I'll always remember as we walked through with this crowd of people and walked down the main street of Christiana, just the obvious signs of, of sadness and of, of brokenness. And, and while I'm sure there are times when people praise it as, you know, this is the way it should be, you know. You just can't help but wonder what the individual stories are of each person that, that calls Christiana home. There were people passed out in the bushes and in the grass. We, we walked past one woman who was completely passed out on the sidewalk, most likely strung out on drugs and on alcohol, and, and, and people just kind of walked by, you know, like she was just some sight to be seen, just a regular occurrence, you know, of this sad place called Christiana. Well, Bethesda was a sad place. And yes, most people had physical disabilities and illnesses, but there were other challenges present too. You know, the, the challenges that go a lot deeper than just the physical challenges, like the spiritual ones and the emotional ones and the, and the mental wounds. You know, hurting people with sad and broken stories. And, you know, I find the more and more I get to know people, you know, here in our community or in our church or just, you know, anywhere in general, the more I find that there are hurting people all around us, you know, even Christians. You know, life hasn't worked out as you hoped, marriage isn't what you expected, you know, we just kind of all start asking what's the point of it all. You know, maybe it has to do with struggling with lack of purpose. I've met plenty of people who just seem to struggle with a lack of purpose in their life where they ask the question, do I make a positive contribution anywhere in, this life right, in my life right now? You know, is my life an accident? Is there really anything worth living for? Some that struggle with spiritual blindness. 
You know, you can't see God at work anywhere right now. You aren't even sure if you believe in Him anymore. I mean, you're looking for a reason to believe, but there just doesn't seem to be any answers to your questions. I've seen sad people who struggle with just a, a pattern of sin, habitual sin in their life, and, you know, maybe it's lust. I mean, you can't exist, you can't go anywhere without struggling with, with lust, or, or maybe it's sexual immorality, and right now, you know, you're a follower of Jesus, but you're sleeping with your boyfriend, and you know it's wrong, but you really don't care what anyone has to say about it. You know, it's just a decision you've decided to make. Maybe it's addiction. You're just overcome with addiction, and you can't seem to find victory in it. We see people all the time that struggle with, you know, the effects of abuse from their past, whether it be sexual or physical or mental. I mean, you were the victim and it wasn't your fault and, and maybe it's in the past, but the after effects are still there, they're still present, they're, they're still festering in your life and you just can't seem to put it behind you. For many, it's just a broken heart. You know, he cheated or she walked out and, and you were abandoned. Or maybe it's just anger or bitterness. I mean, have you ever met someone that just always seems to be angry or always seems to be bitter and they, they just can't seem to let it go. I mean, they want to and, and maybe they even realize that they have it in their life, but then there are other times where you, you just you can't put it behind you and, and so you don't care. It's just the way I'm going to be. It's just the life that I've been dealt. And we've got our share of hurting people, you know, even in a good old place like Hamilton County, you know, even here at Genesis Church, you know, hurting people. And Bethesda did too. You know, why did, were there so many people at Bethesda? Well, there was this well-known superstition that Bethesda was the healing place, that the waters were magical and you could get a quick fix by visiting Bethesda. And so people would come from everywhere, you know, all over this region of the world to this place called Bethesda. And many believed that periodically an angel of the Lord would swoop down from heaven and would stir the waters of Bethesda. And so here's how it goes. If you were there, if you were sitting amongst the hundreds, if not thousands, someone notices that there's been a disturbance, that there's been movement in the water. And all of a sudden, it becomes a mad dash, everyone trying to get in. Now, the smart, the intelligent realized and, and, and noticed, uh, or they realized, they knew that it was all just a phony, it was all just make-believe. But they played along. I mean, what else are you supposed to do with, you know, these sick people in the ancient world? You know, send them to Bethesda. Well, we know now that there was a, a spring that fed these pools from below, and occasionally it would bubble up and create these disturbances in the water. You know, so again, someone would notice the movement and, and try and imagine, if you would, the sight of the lame and the blame and the paralyzed, you know, struggling to be the first in the water. I mean, you can see why it was a sad place, but it's where people went. You know, it was their only hope. It was the end of their, the rope for them. But, you know, I got to thinking we've got our own superstitions today, you know, places where we put false hope. I mean, for the high school students, if, you know, I can just get in with this crowd, you know, if I can just run with this crowd, then everything will be fine, life will be good, I'll be accepted, or if I get these clothes, if, if I get this particular pair of jeans, or get this particular shirt, or if I get this music, or this concert ticket, you know, if I take this drink, then I'm set, you know, this is all I need, this is all I need to a greater life. You know, and for us adults who are far more mature than the high school students, you know, maybe it's in a relationship. If I can just get this relationship in my life in order, or it's this certain amount of money. Or we just think, you know, I'll dig deep. I've got inner strength that I can tap into. 
And if I just regularly tap into this inner strength, then everything will be fine. I can do this on my own willpower. We've got our own superstitions, you know, these supposed methods to our own well-being, just like Bethesda. But then here comes Jesus. And Jesus is on His way back to Jerusalem for this great festival. And rather than go directly to the temple, He walks straight into the mess of Jerusalem. He goes straight to Bethesda. You know, the Son of God, the Messiah. Let's pick it up again in verse 5. It says, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. And so there were hundreds of people at Bethesda, but Jesus chose one. And Jesus walked straight up to this man, this person who had been an invalid for 38 years now, and we don't know how long he's been waiting at Bethesda, but we can assume that he had become some sort of a common fixture here, and maybe he lived at Bethesda. It might have been his home. That might be the only place that he knew at this time. But this man knew nothing more than his mat, which he laid on, his disability, and Bethesda. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Now, Jesus was a master of questions, and this in no way is the exception, but Jesus asked a great question here. And it's to the point. Do you want to get well? And it almost kind of seems like a a forward question for having just met someone. You know, I even find myself looking at this like, you know, come on, Jesus almost seems a little unsympathetic. You know, of course the guy wants to get well. I mean, how do you think he's going to answer that question? But here's what's fascinating about this verse if you take the time to look at it and as we come to know, understand, come to understand more and more who God is and what he's like, this verse here gives us a glimpse and to the extent of Jesus' knowledge. You know, we sometimes use the term in church that God is an omniscient God, meaning that God is an all-knowing God, that He knows all things, past, present, and future, that He knows all things about your life. And Jesus knew this man's condition, and He knew how long He had been suffering, 38 years. And Jesus knew every single day And on this particular day, Jesus said to him, he asked him, do you want to get well? Are you ready to get well? And I think it's interesting what Jesus' question reveals to us. It reveals to us that while he is all-knowing, it also reveals to us that he will never force himself upon anyone. Do you notice that? I mean, he could have walked in, he could have raised his hands, he could have healed everyone at Bethesda on site, but he didn't do that. Instead, he walks up to this man and he seeks permission before intervening in this man's life. And so here's Jesus, you know, standing before a man whose needs were so apparent, so obvious, and Jesus asked the embarrassingly obvious question, do you want to get well? Verse 7, we see the man's reply. Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. You know, while I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. I mean, you can almost sense uh, the whininess in his voice a bit at being frustrated in that no one has ever taken the time to help him. But this man, in, in, in some way, indirectly answered Jesus by telling how he had not been able to be healed because others would get into the water before he did. You know, I tried to make my way down to the water every time. Someone else always rushed in. You know, there's nothing I can do. 
But even in the desperation of this man's response, in making this statement, the man admitted his need for help. Even in his desperation, he was admitting that, I can't do this by myself. I mean, his hope for healing was stuck behind his hopelessness of having no one to help him get into the water in time. And so after 38 years, this man's problem had become his way of life. He was absolutely consumed by his disability and the effects that it had on him. Now, no one had ever taken the time to help him. He had no hope of ever being healed and little to no desire of helping himself. Lost hope physically, losing hope spiritually too. And everything looked hopeless, that is, until the day that Jesus made his way through the sheep gate into the crowd of this area, these pools called Bethesda. And I can't help but think to just share with you this morning, no matter how trapped you feel in your life right now, whatever pain you may be facing, whatever your great frustration, whatever the circumstances of your life, no matter hard it may be, whatever your story, know and believe that God can minister even to the greatest needs of your life. Don't let your problem, your frustration, or, or your past in any way cause you to lo- lose hope. Because we serve a God who sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to this world, who is an all-knowing, omniscient God. He knows every detail. He knows every circumstance. He knows your hurt. He knows your pain. He knows your frustration. He knows your fears. He knows your anxiety. And this same Jesus that came to these pools of Bethesda comes today to minister to those who are incapable of doing a great work for ourselves. And just like this man, I, I love the way Peter says it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, a kind of a prescription for us on how we should live. He says, humble yourselves. Just stop there for a second, because that's the first greatest step that we have to take, to humble yourself. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a cry of desperation almost. It's to literally say, I, I can't do this on my own. I must humble myself, I must bring myself under God, I must recognize that I don't have the inner strength in and of myself to accomplish this. Humble yourselves. Therefore, under whose hand? Under God's mighty hand, that He may lift you up in due time. Now it says in due time, meaning there there has to be some sequence of events that will take place before God will actually lift you up. You might have to hurt for a while. You know, it may sting for a bit. You know, there may be a season where you feel like you are absolutely, completely out of hope that nothing's going to change for you, but are you continuing to humble yourself before God and put your life under His mighty hand and under His direction so that He can do what? So that He can lift you up in His time, in due time, when He's ready, when He knows that you're ready. And verse 7, until then, cast all of your anxiety on Him. I I just noticed this morning that notice it doesn't say to walk slowly and gradually lay your anxiety on Him. It says to cast it. I think a better word would be to throw it. 
How many of you need to throw your anxiety onto Jesus Christ this morning? Because it's sure heavy, isn't it? And you're tired of carrying it and it wears you down and it's ruining your life. And some of you just need to cast it on Jesus because He's invited us to do that. And why has He cast all your anxiety on Him? Why? Because He cares for you. And this paralyzed man had one important trait that many people lack. He knew he needed help. I mean, that's the first greatest step to recovery, isn't it? I mean, you've got to admit that you need help. And not only was he unable to help himself, but he also hadn't been able to persuade anyone else to help him. You know, you and I are surrounded by so many supports and so many buffers today to help us through. I mean, whether it be medicine or, or counselors, you know, or books, or, you know, if you're lonely, you can get on Facebook. You can get all sorts of friends on Facebook, all right? And all of these things, you know, are great, and there's an appropriate place for each of them. Nothing wrong with any of them. There's a place for each of them, but we have all of these resources around us to help us, to encourage us, to motivate us, to, to try and fix us. And, but I think with all of these supports, it's possible that we might not ever face our own inability to save or fix ourselves. Let me say that again. With all of these supports around us, with all of these resources available to us, one of the greatest tragedies is that it's possible that we might not ever face our own inability to save or fix ourselves. I mean, we can't save ourselves. And notice that Jesus didn't choose the ones who were pushing forward in the crowd at Bethesda. You know, the ones that had the physical strength to get into the waters. He went directly to the person who had almost given up all hope. He went to a desperate person who didn't have to be convinced he needed help. This man was at his end. He knew that he needed help, and he was ready to respond to the power of God in his life. And you know what? Maybe you're at that end this morning. I mean, you've barely made it here. You know that you're at the end, and you're desperate, and you need help, and you're ready to cast all your cares and your anxieties on him. Well, here's the question that I want to ask of you this morning. It's the same question that Jesus asked of this man. Do you want to get well? I mean, it couldn't be a more pointed or direct question. Are you ready to get well? I mean, it's the question for the college student who feels fairly lost and disappointed up until about now with life. And maybe this morning Jesus is asking, do you want to get well? There's another way. Jesus says there's another way. Or it's the question for the married couple, and you know Jesus, and you know that your marriage is slipping away from you, and you don't feel like you can do anything about it, and maybe Jesus is asking, do you think it's about time? Do you want to get well? I mean, do you have any idea of the strength and the healing that I can offer? Jesus says there's another way. It's the question for the middle-aged guy, and you're looking back on the first half of your life, and you see no signs of success. You haven't accomplished your goals. You feel like your life has been nothing more than a letdown. It's ruining you and it's ruining your family. And maybe this morning Jesus is asking you, do you think maybe it's time to get well? Jesus says there's another way. Or it's a question for the angry mom and you're, you're trying to make the best of life, but you can't let go of the pain of your past. But it, today Jesus, he, He's asking you and you can feel it in your heart. Do you want to get well? And you're realizing that that wasn't just his question, it's my question. 
Am I ready to get well? Jesus says there's another way. It's a well-known verse, but a powerful verse. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Is Jesus the way of your life right now? I mean, it's for those of you who call yourself a Christian. I think even we have to step back from time to time and ask ourselves that question. Is Jesus Christ the way of my life? Because here's what we do, and here's the problem, I think, with our faith at times. We invite Jesus Christ to be the Lord of our life. I'm not reducing or minimizing that decision in any way. It's, I think, the greatest decision that you can ever make in your life. But here's what we do as Christians. It's like we get our ticket to heaven and we put it in our pocket. That's it. I've got my ticket. You know, but my life, well, this is my life. These are my choices. These are my circumstances. Some people have it better than I do. This is the hand that's been dealt me. Oh, well, something will happen to me one day. I'll pass on, but at least I've got my ticket to heaven. Jesus says, hey, I am the way. But I'm also the life. And I believe that Jesus Christ not only offers us eternal life in heaven, but He offers us life today. He offers us freedom, you know? And the tragedy is that when we choose Jesus and, and then we do nothing with Him, and we keep living the same ordinary life and we try to do it on our own. You know, here in John chapter 5, you know, Jesus says to the man, do you want to get well? And he immediately responds with this excuse, hey, nobody will help me get into the water. And then look what Jesus says to him in verse 8. He says, get up. And I'm sure there was a little, you know, there, there was some tone in his voice. Jesus didn't ask him any longer. He told him. He said, get up, take your mat and get out of here. You know, again, I think it's just interesting to see that Jesus doesn't force himself on anyone. You know, this man had to choose to be obedient in this situation in order to receive the healing that God wanted to give to him in his life. You know, we can try to do it on our own, or you can respond to Jesus this morning and say, you know what, Jesus, you are the only way, and I want to follow you and I want so much more than a ticket to heaven, but I want to have a relationship with you as well. And friends, that's what Jesus wants from you. He wants a relationship with you. And I believe that's what He wanted from this man. But that's what He wants from you. It was a commitment to have a relationship with Jesus that He can walk with you through any way, anything. And, you know, is Jesus the way of your life right now? I mean, it's the same question for those of you who have never given your life to Jesus Christ before. I mean, the message is this, Christ died. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth and He died and He made Himself available to you and me. But like the man in the story, He won't force Himself upon you. But if you let Him, if you're willing, He'll save you. The Apostle Paul, when he was writing in the book of Romans, in chapter 7, he was talking about this, he, he was always reverting back to the person that he didn't want to be. Uh, he knew that Jesus Christ had made him new and made him whole, but there was this tendency in him to be you know, pulled back to his old way of living, his old life. And finally, almost as in desperation at the end of verse, uh, chapter 7, he said, 
But what did Jesus do for me? He came to rescue me. Jesus Christ came to rescue me. All glory to Him, all glory to God for sending Jesus Christ to rescue me. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, I hope that we can find hope this morning in knowing that you are a God that knows all things. And you know every detail of our life. You know all of the circumstances. You know our great strengths and our great weaknesses. You know what makes us happy and you know what makes us sad. You've seen when we failed. You've seen when we cried. You've seen when we were hurting. And you've offered us Jesus. While Jesus' great gift to us is salvation, Lord, I think we sometimes forget that it's so much more than heaven one day. But it's for life right now. And God, my prayer is that we would be willing to set ourselves alongside of that pool at Bethesda even today and hear Jesus say to us, do you want to get well? Or maybe the more appropriate question is, do you want to be free? Help us to say yes. Help us to trust you. Help us cast all of our anxieties on you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.